Well, back when I was at school, uh, we had a teacher who I think is probably the worst teacher I have ever seen. I was a school teacher for 22 years. I was paid to be a teacher, but I have yet, in all my time, I never saw a worse teacher that they inflicted on us for Year 10 French. He was, um, well, put it this way, he had absolutely zero classroom control and he was treated like a joke. Uh, And it was actually... I stopped going to the class, actually, because he didn't even keep a role and I I, I wasn't prepared to be naughty. I, I felt sorry for him, but I wasn't getting anything out of it, so I just used to go to the library. And he never noticed... Um, except when he wrote my report uh, and he just said it's clear that Stephen has no interest in this subject well he wouldn't have known because he didn't even know who I was but anyway there was a particular day and uh, there was a boy let's call him Malcolm because that was his name and he'd eaten a packet of fruit tingles from the canteen at lunchtime and he had the alfoil wrapper from inside of it and he shoved it in the keyhole and he packed it in tight and so when our teacher came to open the door his key wouldn't go in and so here's a whole corridor full of kids waiting and watching this perplexed teacher try to get us into the classroom and the class didn't do it quietly so there's laughing and carrying on and there was a terrifying teacher Mr Allen was his name and he was in the classroom next door and he came out to yell at us and when he yelled it meant business you could hear him three blocks away and he he came in and he gave us both barrels. What is going on here? And then he said, oh, sorry, Mr Hall. Because here's this poor perplexed teacher on his knees trying to get the alfoil out of the lock. And so this other teacher has realised that he's now stepped into another teacher's territory, which is embarrassing for both parties. Because on the one hand, you've got a situation which is completely out of control, which is impacting on Mr Allen's capacity to teach his class. We're now 10 minutes into the lesson. But he gets there and he sees this teacher who has lost the plot completely. And it was embarrassing. Now, we might look at the world and we might see the evidence of chaos. And that was what was going on in that corridor that day. Chaos. And we might look at the chaos and we think this is evidence of something. Mr Allen looked at the evidence of the corridor in chaos and thinks there can't be a teacher present and I'd better go and straighten these louts out. But when he got there he was embarrassed because there was a teacher present and he had no control over the situation whatsoever. So how do you feel about the world and how do you feel about God's place in it? How's the world travelling according to you? Is everything as it should be? I'm here to tell you on May the 21st and in the lead up to it we will have politicians telling us the world is not as it should be and we need to vote for them so that it will get closer to how we think it should be. Politicians exist to try to tell us that the world can be better and we can fix it. But on May the 21st, late in the day, at least some of you will be disappointed with the outcome. Unless we all vote for the same party. (laughs) And I'm not here to ask who you're going to vote for. But that's the nature of elections. People vote, and at the end of it, some are disappointed. But what about the wider world? We live in a world that's becoming increasingly uh, hostile in all sorts of different ways. Now, unless you've been living under a rock, you'll notice that there's a terrible war going on in Europe at the moment. And, And all sorts of atrocities have occurred... And terrible cruelty has been inflicted on people who were just trying to get along with life. 
What's the right and the wrong of it? I'm not competent to judge, except that it's awful. Is God out of control? Has, has God stopped caring about these things? People have prayed, but where's God in all of this? Well, these are the sorts of questions that must have been occupying the minds of God's people in Babylon. Now, we need to think about this. Nathan spoke about um, the, the background situation that was going on in Isaiah 40 last week. Uh, Isaiah the prophet wrote to confront the situation in Jerusalem where people that God had saved through the exodus and brought into the promised land were in active rebellion against him. In Isaiah chapter 1 we read that it's like children rebelling against their parents and this is an intolerable situation Because what it means is these children have forsaken the Holy One of Israel. And that's not good. So chapters 1 to 39 of Isaiah are written against the backdrop of the terrifying Assyrian Empire coming through and sweeping away the northern tribes of Israel and getting to the very gates of Jerusalem. And that was meant to be a wake-up call for Jerusalem to turn them back to living God's way according to the stipulations of God's covenant. It was meant to be a wake-up call, but it hadn't woken them up. There was only a very small number of people in Jerusalem that even cared about God's word. And so right at the end of chapter 39, Isaiah looks to the future and says, one day the Babylonians are going to take Jerusalem. Now, as Nathan explained last week, chapter 40 of the book of Isaiah was written ahead of time to people who would need his words when they'd got to Babylon. Isaiah was someone who, by the grace of God, could see enough of the future to write it down in a form that would bring encouragement to people whose worlds had been shattered. Because they couldn't imagine a world without Jerusalem where the temple was, where God, they thought, lived. And so Isaiah, 150 years before those words would become necessary wrote them down and they were preserved so that people in Babylon could read and make sense of the situation that they are now in. And so the, the uh, Isaiah chapter 40 begins, comfort, comfort, who? My people. So Isaiah 40 was written, was preached and then written to be a means of comfort to God's people. Isaiah 41 was preached and was written to be a word of exhortation for people that were not God's people. The nations. Not the Jews, but the nations. And so Isaiah 40, written to God's people. Isaiah 41, preached to people who were not a member of the covenant community. What are God's plans for them? We'll have a look at verse 1. Verse 1 of chapter 41, it's like, Yahweh, the Lord, is announcing a trial and he's the judge. And he's calling the litigants to come before him and he says, listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Now coastlands, um, peoples, it's just another way of saying everybody, the whole world. In particular, people that aren't members of Yahweh's family, uh, Israel. Listen to me in silence, that's appropriate. Because this is an important meeting. This is a meeting that will determine their destiny. 
And silence is critical because they're talking to the Holy One of Israel. And so silence is the way it should be. Let them approach, says the Lord. Let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Now notice there that the uh, the nations, the, the coastlands are called to renew their strength. That's a link back to chapter 40. So just turn back to chapter 40, verse 31. What do we read there? They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. So that's written to God's people. Now here's an opportunity for people who aren't God's people to be renewed in strength. So the same prospect that's held out for the people that have come to God and stayed true to him, that's now held out to people that aren't members of God's family. So how do nations renew their strength? Well, presumably the same way that Israel does, by waiting on God, by depending on him, by coming to him in faith. Now when it says there, let's draw near for judgment, judgment is not necessarily negative because a judge can find you not guilty, can't he? So what this is, this is a a word of invitation to the nations and on the same basis that God welcomes Israel by faith, he's extending that welcome out to the nations and saying you come the same way. So the rest of the chapter poses the question, will the nations do this? Will the nations come and be judged not guilty? Or will they continue in their idolatry and be found guilty? That's the question. So, verses 2 to 4, continue. Yahweh in the courtroom. And he has a big question for the world. And the question is, who controls history? Who's in charge? And the answer is, Yahweh rules the world. So he asks a series of questions. Now notice all the way through the passage the number of references to God uh, in the first person. Um, but, he, but here he, he poses it by way of questions. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning. And the answer is at the second part of verse 4. I, the Lord. I, Yahweh, the first and with the last. I'm he. What Yahweh's saying to the nations is who's in charge? And then he answers the question, I am. And later on he's going to prove it. And we'll see that in a moment. But this person who... Victory meets at every step, one from the east. We're actually introduced to him by name in chapter 44. His name is Cyrus. Cyrus was the king of Persia. When Isaiah wrote these words, he hadn't even been born. It was over 150 years after Isaiah wrote these words that Cyrus steps onto the stage of world history. The Assyrians were the dominant world power for the first half of the book of Isaiah. They were overtaken by the Babylonians. The Babylonians carried Judah into exile in Jerusalem. But in time, the Babylonians were overthrown by the Persians. And so if you read the book of Daniel, while the king was having a knees-up celebration, without realising it, the Persians were at the gates on their way in. And it seems that the Babylonian people were so sick of their king that they were quite happy to let the Persians in without even putting up a fight. Cyrus was the king of Persia and eventually God used him to take the Jews back to Jerusalem 
Who's in charge? God says, I am. I'm raising up a king you haven't even heard of from a place you don't even really know exists. But God's the one who's woken him. He stirred him up. And this king is a terrifying king. Look at that. He tramples kings underfoot. Um, Yahweh gives up nations before him. Uh, He passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod, says verse 3. Now, what that means, it could mean one of two things. Either it means he travels so quickly that it's an image for his feet barely touch the ground, or he's carving out new territory that he's never been to before. could be both. But what's described here is a terrifying military ruler. Who's in charge? Yahweh says, I am. I'm sending him. Verse 4b, second part of verse 4, I the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. That's who's doing it. Now that's a reminder back in Exodus, Yahweh reveals himself. Moses says, what's your name? If I'm going to go back and rescue the people of Egypt, uh, the people out of Egypt, what's your name? And God says to him, I am. I am who I am. Now what that means, this is very important for understanding who God is. Where did God come from? We don't know. He's just always been. But that verse there is just critical for understanding God. I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. There's never been a time when God didn't exist. There never will be a time when God doesn't exist. He's always been and he always will be. That's an idea that's taken up and applied to Jesus in the book of Revelation. We're going to look at Revelation later this year, God willing. But the same thing that's applied to Yahweh here is applied to Jesus, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And so that's who's in charge, a God who is outside of time. Now, you and I can't imagine what it's like to be God, can we? Can we? By definition, no. You see, you and I are stuck in time. And some of us are feeling the passage of time very acutely. I spent a bit of time under the house the other day trying to find something dead. Well, at least my nose was working, but my knees sure aren't. And I can remember when it wouldn't have been any trouble at all for me to crawl under the pipes and over the top of other things and all that, but it is now. I'm feeling acutely the passage of time, right? But time is our environment. It's all we know. The great C.S. Lewis says, given that time's our environment, how is it that we're often so surprised by it? So if you were looking at Lewis Rogers, and if you haven't seen him for six months, what will you say when you see Nathan and Beck next to you? Say, oh, hasn't he grown? Well, of course he has. What did you expect? (laughs) We're surprised by time. But God is outside of time. It's not his environment. We don't know what it's like for someone to have always existed and always exist for whom time is not a category. There's no such thing as past, present, future with God. He just is and we need to remember that well anyway verses 5 to 7 Yahweh's called the nations to his courtroom he's bid them be silent and he tells what the result of them coming into contact with this terrifying King Cyrus is going to be the coastlands have seen and are afraid the ends of the earth tremble Uh, everyone helps his neighbour and says to his brother be strong and then it talks about making idols And so what's in view here is Cyrus is coming and the nations are terrified and so what do they do for protection? They look to each other and they think we better make some more gods. 
And Yahweh says, dumb idea. Now they're both the sorts of things that Israel used to do. They used to look to foreign nations for their alliances and they used to worship the gods of the nations and God has punished his people for that. And now he's saying, nations, if you continue to do that, you're going to be under my judgment, my negative judgment. So turn away from that. But these people, they bid each other be strong and they they make idols and they say in verse 7, it is good. Now where have we heard that before? It is good. Creation. So the people who were making their gods are pronouncing on them the same thing that God said when he made his world. Now can you see how silly this is? This is a an idea which is mentioned over and over again in the Old Testament. Worshipping an idol means something you've made becomes the object of your worship. But think about it. The greater one makes the lesser thing. Isn't that right? Obviously the person who makes something is greater than the thing that's been made. When God makes the world, the greater one makes something lesser. And so we who have been made give our worship to the one who made us. But idolatry turns that on its head. Idolatry says, I will worship the thing I've made. The greater worships the lesser and then thinks that that's where protection will come from. Now that's foolish. And God is trying to expose the nonsense of idolatry to turn these people away from it. Why would you worship something that you've made yourself? Why would you look for assistance to people who are as weak and fallible as you are, even if they tell you be strong? And so verses 8 to 20 hold out a contrast. And the contrast is what God says to his people. And it starts in verse 8, but you, so it's a contrast, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. So Israel is another word for Jacob, Jacob and his descendants. Jacob had his name changed to Israel, but Jacob was the grandson of Abraham. And Abraham was promised by God that through one of his descendants, God's blessing would be returned to the world. And so what God is doing now is seeking to comfort his people whose worlds have been shattered by reminding them that they are a part of his plan. The plan that he announced to Abraham, that he re-announced to Jacob, his people stuck in Babylon, they're still part of it and he hasn't forgotten them despite the appearances of chaos. So look at, look at, the, uh, look at how, what, he, what he says to them, you whom I took from the ends of the earth. He says, you're my servant and I haven't cast you off. It's, he's speaking here of a privileged relationship and because of the privileges of that relationship, because God won't change, God who's outside of time, even when his people let him down, when he makes a commitment to his people, he won't quit. And he will do what he's promised and in that there is hope. Now there is no hope for people who continue to turn away and look for strength in other people or look for guidance to idols. No hope. But for people who wait on the Lord, there is. And so as a result of this, verse 10, now if you forget everything else I say today, this is the heart of the passage. You should underline it, you should memorise it. But this is not a promise to individuals it's a promise to a community of God's people 
Obviously, it has an individual application. But God says to this group of people exiled in Babylon, whose worlds have been shattered, who might be wondering, is God in control? Are we still part of his plan? He says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. Why? I am your God. And he's not a God who quits. He's not a God who gives up on people. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now that word uphold could be translated, I will grip you. I will grip you with my righteous right hand. We went to the Twelve Apostles once with the family and it was incredibly windy at the Twelve Apostles. And they had this fence um, just to stop people falling over or being blown off. And my son, who was only about four, was too adventurous and he climbed the fence and was dangling over the top of it. That was far too close for comfort because the wind was pretty strong and I thought, I just hope he doesn't want to see what's on the other side. So I grabbed what I could of his belt on his trousers and I gripped it. And to this day I can remember the sensation of that because I, can, I often think, what would I have done if he had gone over, if I couldn't have got to him? What would I have done next? Would I have jumped over? I don't know. Glad it didn't happen. But I gripped him because I wanted to do everything I could in my power to make sure that wasn't a possibility. Yahweh grips his people. Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, I am your God. These are people that were fearful, they were dismayed. But Yahweh promises to uphold them, to grip them with his righteous right hand. And then he says, by contrast, all of the people that have been giving them grief are going to be put to shame, they're going to be confounded. Um, he says you'll look and they won't even be there verse 13 he says I the Lord your God hold your right hand it is I who say to you fear not just in case they haven't got it yet I am the one who helps you so God is going to preserve his people now how do you become a member of his people those who wait on the Lord those who come to him in faith and God promises that he won't lose them now we heard those words before of course they're New Testament words too what does Jesus say now, have you, are you ever like me wondering if you've blown it this time and does God really care? Has he stopped caring? Maybe I've done so much that I... Maybe I've lost my salvation. Do you ever wonder about that? Well, if you do, you need to underline some other verses in John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verses 28 to 30. Now, if you look at the outline, I've got all these verses on there, so I don't feel you have to scribble them down now. But John chapter 10, verses 28 to 30, Jesus is saying, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the one who cares so wonderfully for my sheep. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given to me, given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Can you lose your salvation? No, you can't. Because when Jesus has won you with his blood, he won't lose you. The Father has given them to him. And if you're one of Jesus' sheep, he's not going to lose you. He's echoing words that Yahweh spoke to the frightened uh, people of Judah, exiled in Babylon. Fear not, I am the one who helps you. I will uphold you, I'll grip you with my righteous right hand. Well, in verses 14 to 16, we see that Yahweh's presence transforms these fearful ones. Um, verse 14 he says fear not you worm Jacob now that's that's not a put down 
If I called you worms, you might well take it as a put down, but this is God speaking to his people. What he's saying is worms, when you take me as your God, when you quit being fearful, when I am, when you're conscious that I'm holding you with my righteous right hand, you'll be able to take on mountains. Have a look at it there. Um, you shall thresh the mountains. Verse 15. How could a worm take on a mountain? Could you imagine that? Could you imagine a worm quarrying a mountain? It's unimaginable, but that's the situation. The people of Judah are frightened, dismayed, weak, dispirited. And they've got a mountain of trouble in front of them. And Yahweh says, take heart, I'm with you, worm, and you will thresh the mountains. He's using an image of harvesting there. In those days, if you really wanted to secure most of the, uh, the grain from your wheat, you build a threshing sledge and you put teeth of stone and, and, and metal and, and you drove it over the wheat that was laid out on the threshing floor and then that separated the wheat from the chaff and you waited for the wind to blow the chaff away. Yahweh says, that's how you will be with your enemies. Your enemies will not be able to stand. I will make you worms into a threshing sledge now notice who's going to help them do this you shall rejoice in verse 16 in the lord in the holy one of israel the holy one of israel that's isaiah's favorite term for describing god the holy one of israel 31 times he uses that phrase don't underestimate it friends who's god well he's the one who's for the first and the last and he's the holy one holiness is not a popular concept with christians have you noticed that? If we ran a seminar in here to how, how to handle your finances or how to have a better sex life, we'd get a full haul. If we had a seminar on the holiness of God, I doubt many would come. Just too frightening. But you can't have one without the other. God is love, but he's a God of holiness. And Isaiah repeatedly tells us over and over, 31 times, the Holy One of Israel. Now, holiness is a threat to the ungodly. So in verse 4 of chapter 1, we find that the offence of the people of Jerusalem is that they have forsaken the Holy One of Israel. And that's not a good position to be in. Holiness is a threat to the ungodly. But to people of faith, God's holiness is their refuge. That's your security. Because God's the one who's the first and the last. The one who's outside of time. The one who causes history. And when you become his friend, and he says, I'm going to uphold you, I'm never going to lose you, his holiness is every bit to your advantage. So, verses 17 to 20, Yahweh promises to provide miraculously for the needy he uses imagery from the book of exodus he says i'm going to bring water where there is none in the desert i'm going to make trees grow where there is none it's it's taking them back in their historical memory to how god brought his people out of egypt and he provided everything they needed as they came into the promised land through the wilderness it's also looking ahead to the fact that god's going to restore creation one day there's going to be a wonderful new creation it's a big theme of the book of isaiah But verses 21 to 27, Yahweh brings a challenge to the world and it's God's. He goes back to court with the nations. And he says in verse 21, set forth your case. Bring your proof, says the God of the King of Jacob. 
let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Now, what's going to be brought here? What's God saying to bring? The idols. Bring them in. Let's see how they go. Now, what does it say about a God that he has to be carried? Earlier on, we've read that they nail them down. Yahweh is a God who can't be moved. He's eternal. These gods, by contrast, have to be nailed down, and now they can be brought in. And Yahweh says, well, bring them to court, and let's see how they travel. Do something good. All right, do something bad. Just do something. What can an idol do? Nothing. What he's saying here is choose your side. Do you want to pledge yourself to these objects you've made yourself for all the help that they can give you? Or do you want to come over to the living God who can help? Choose your side. So verse 25, he goes back to the fact that he's in control of history. I stirred up one from the north and he's come. I've skipped a bit and we we can't... Yahweh says in verse 22... Get these idols to tell us what's going to happen. Get them to explain what's already happened, but get them to explain what will happen. Can they do it? Yahweh pitches his claim to be the controller of history by saying, I can tell you what's going to happen. And that's why I believe that Isaiah was able to say King Cyrus is coming. Even though Isaiah didn't live to see King Cyrus, he knew him by name. Because Yahweh, who's outside of time and who's in control of history, told him to write it down. And so when these people are in Babylon and they're looking at this book, when Cyrus turns up, they'll say, of course he's turned up. We were told he was going to. Because Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, is in control of history. And he's able to predict events even a hundred years away. So verses 28 to 29... Yahweh sums up, it's his verdict. When I look, there is no one. Among these, there is no counsellor. The idols just can't give you anything. Who, when I ask, gives an answer? Behold, they're all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. So nations, Australians, quit your, quit your idols. Uh, have, have just a quick look in your own heart. What are you relying on, really, for satisfaction, for joy, for peace, for purpose? What are you relying on, really? I go to the newsagent sometimes and I'm always about third in line behind people queuing up to get to the Tatslotto counter. Those people are relying on a windfall to give them something. But the evidence is that won't make anybody happy. It just causes trouble. People who win the lottery lose friends because they've got all these people who come out of the woodwork wanting a bit of it. And they don't feel like they want to share it with them. It's a, where are you looking for your purpose, for your peace? So Isaiah is writing ahead of time. He's predicted a national crisis and then he's given them the word of the Lord, Yahweh, their God, to shelter them when the crisis has come, to give them comfort. He says that they should rely on the Holy One of Israel, the one who has paid for them, their Redeemer. They shouldn't continue to rely on the nations or the idols as they once had. 
We live in very interesting times, don't we? Just this week I read in the Australian newspaper, uh, their foreign correspondent Greg Sheridan wrote these words, the government and Labor and most strategic analysts tell us correctly that these are uniquely challenging times strategically and militarily. Guess who he was talking about? China. Now, I'm not a political strategist. I'm not um, someone who's gifted in analysing foreign affairs. But if you just pay attention a little bit, things are happening now that could play out in all sorts of terrifying ways. We have no guarantee that the kind of life we've become so accustomed to is going to continue. Have we? No guarantee at all. Things are happening. I don't, I'm not here to tell you when these things might play out, but they could happen in our lifetime. The challenge will be, and the challenge for us May 21st and following, is, is we will, will we be shattered by the election outcome? Or will we cling to God in Jesus? Will we look to idols? A political party can be an idol. Will we look to an idol or will we look to God? But here's the challenge for us today, because you might have been listening to this and thinking, well, I'm not sure that God is in control. There may be things in your life that persuade you that he's not. You might be dismayed at personal circumstances, some family situation, some illness, some reversal in your work situation. And and these are big issues. These are big issues. You might be thinking, well, is God in control of the Ukraine? Did God, if God can raise up Cyrus, did God raise up Vladimir Putin? They're big issues. I want to suggest at least a bit of an answer. If God's not in control, then who is? Now, there are some Christians who answer this problem by saying, no, there are some things God doesn't know and he can't do. And so that's how they get around the problem. But according to Isaiah, Yahweh himself through the prophet says, I am in charge and I do cause history. Now, if that's not true... We're living in a world where God is out of control and that's a world with no hope and no comfort. Or it's a world in which there's no God at all, in which case why complain? The Bible doesn't tell us where evil comes from, but we know it's real. But what the Bible does tell us is that God is a God who can work even in the most evil circumstances to create good. Now, the outstanding example of that is the cross of the Lord Jesus, isn't it? If you read in the book of Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 4, Peter on two occasions says, God did this. God used an injustice. The trial and the committal of an innocent man to die, and God used that what for? For your salvation, for your forgiveness so that you didn't have to face judgment. Jesus took your punishment. God used the world's greatest injustice to establish the world's greatest salvation. Evil is a problem. It continues to follow us around. It continues to confront us. 
Where does it come from? The Bible doesn't tell us. But the Bible does tell us that even evil can be used by God for good. Now I want to finish with these words from the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8, the famous verse is Romans 8.28. We know that in for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are calling, called according to his purpose. We know that, don't we? Verses 31 to 32 say this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If ever you're troubled by the state of the world and it's, it's led you to wonder, like Mr Allen, who's in charge here, if ever you wonder that, ask yourself, is God good? Has he done anything good for you? Romans 8, 31, 32 says, yes, he has. He's given you his son. Now, does that mean we have to understand everything? No, we don't. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the secret things are with God. There are some things we don't get because we're not God. But has God done anything good? Yes, he has. He's given you his son. If he did nothing else, would that be enough? Would it? It would. So if you're wondering if God's in control, think about that. Is God good? Yes, he is. Is he kind? And I'd like to finish by saying that in a world of danger, a world of chaos and uncertainty, despite appearances, we need not be fearful because the Holy One of Israel is with us who trust him through his redeeming son. So let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you for these words. They're challenging words, uh, but we confess that we believe they're true, that you are in control. Uh, please help us, though, help us to live as though we believe that. Help us with our questions, uh, with our doubts and our hesitations. But I ask that you would help us to be people who live lives free of fear, uh, so certain of the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ uh, and all you've done for us through him. And we pray that you would help us to be quick to share the truth of the gospel with um, the people of our nation so that they too can turn from their idols and and find peace and salvation and comfort through you, uh, the Holy One of Israel. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.